Hello, and welcome to How I Made It Happen, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Elizabeth Ogabi. On this podcast, I speak to women who are entrepreneurs, innovators, and game changers. I dive deep into conversation with them to understand how they've taken their ideas and made them a reality. If you're new here, here's a little introduction about me. I'm the founder of For Working Ladies, a platform for entrepreneurial thinking women. I'm also the author of the newly published book, Side Hustle in Progress, a practical guide to kickstarting your business. In this book, I share everything you need to know as you embark on your own journey of turning your ideas into reality. From how to get ideas to how to market your business, I cover it all. If you'd like to purchase a copy, the link is in the show notes and it can also be purchased at all bookstores. This episode is the last episode of season two, and I want to say a big thank you to all our listeners and to our first sponsor of the podcast, Papier. I'll be back with season three early next year. So if you haven't caught up with season one and two, this is your chance. This week, I'm joined by Namarata Kamda, founder of Plein Air, a British skincare brand that uses organic and sustainable approaches to beauty and lifestyle. During her late 30s, she experienced stress-related burnout and a bout of postnatal depression and took time off to work on herself. Her own subsequent journey with mental health and what she learned during recovery from burnout, coupled with the desire to lead a more balanced life, was the impetus for her to create Plein Air. Her products were created out of a genuine need to develop safe, effective and pleasurable alternatives for young women to care for their skin. In this conversation, Namarata shares with me her journey of building her career in FMCGs over the last 15 years, how her research gave Plein Air a competitive edge, and the importance of brand execution. Plein Air is currently raising France through a crowdfund, and if you're interested, you can see more information at the link in the show notes. Here is Namarata Kamda. So I think with Plein Air, it's something that possibly had been simmering under the surface for quite a long time for me. I think I'm, I'm maybe not the kind of entrepreneur that just one day woke up and had like a eureka moment, but um, I've been working in skincare and, you know, in the industry, you know, in, in consumer goods for most of my life. And perhaps like psychologically, I always knew I would, you know, do something in the space. And so Plein air is actually derived from the French expression for in the open air. And it's all about having these qualities of natural air and light. And I think that's a really good euphemism, I suppose, for what's happening in the industry today. It feels like it was very claustrophobic before with one or two or three companies holding all the power. And I think today, like the creator holds all the power. So it's all about creating your own beauty narrative outdoors. It's it's not a, a sort of forced thing where you're creating these beauty ideals in a very forced environment indoors with a shoot and a model. I think everybody today is creating their own sort of beauty journey and sharing it with their audiences. So I think it's, it's really a testament to the way that this industry is evolving. So one of the unique things you bring to Plein Air is your experience. As you've mentioned, you were a brand builder or brand developer at Unilever, Pepsi and Coke for over 16 years, leading on the development of Baby Dove, as well as the brand redeployment of LACMA skincare and color cosmetics. How has that experience added to your entrepreneurial journey, especially as they were more traditional beauty brands, unlike 
you know, the startup brands, which are quite different in their marketing, in their approach, even in like the whole logistics and even just how things are made and, you know, the fact that they're more conscious as well. I mean, I think that, um, you know, my training in sort of these big multinational companies has really given me um, a lot of discipline in my thinking and the way that I do things. But it's also given me, I get asked this a lot of times, but it's also given me like a good sense of what maybe not to do. Because I think that, yeah, because I think that model has changed, you know, so much from the turn of the previous century. You had these big companies that created these kind of homogenous products. And um, now with technology and, and data, you know, mass customization and personalization is, is, is really what is now. And I think in some ways it's very hard for these big companies with all this infrastructure to really get their arms around that. And so I think that, you know, for me as an entrepreneur, I also looked at that and I was like, well, you know, these big companies that are charged with making all these consumer products that could sold to millions of customers all the time, they're not really set up in a way that's very nimble or to like maybe um, jump onto trends or consumer ideas or shifts in culture in the same way that smaller companies are. And I think smaller companies do have access to technology and customization and they can be so intimately close to their customer now more than ever before. And so while I would, I would definitely say that I do not think I could have created a product or built what we have without that kind of discipline that comes from understanding consumers and, and branding and what goes into creating an interesting brand. I also do think that having worked in a big company, I kind of knew that as a small company, like what are your competitive advantages as far as being agile, being nimble, being quick to jump on different technologies, uh, building teams of experts as opposed to having lots of people on your books. Like I think that's, again, a very old fashioned thing to do, like having lots of people on the books and millions of employees. I think, you know, like for us, we are having like real experts work in our company and we contract it out, which again, I think is like the future of how companies are going to operate. It's really fundamentally inefficient to have lots of people on your books. It's, it's more efficient at some stage, like at an early stage, especially to bring in that expertise as you need it in real time. Yeah. So I guess the short answer is basically the fact that you've learned what not to do and how to do things differently. Absolutely. And I think that's brilliant experience, especially because you've worked across different brands. You've been able to see how they grow, you know, the advantages and the disadvantages and then bring that over to your startup, which is why I think it's good to have that corporate experience at times. Yeah. And also just knowing like, I mean, to be fair to, to the experience of working in big companies, they are really the training ground for general management. You know, when you reach a certain size and turnover, I think being a founder is so different from being a CEO. You know, we're at, at a revenue stage where you can still be a founder. I think, you know, when we, if we get to a revenue stage where it's going to be much bigger, then you will need a CEO and there will be general management involved. And that's what these big companies they do. They teach you to be an excellent general manager. Being a founder is totally different from that. It's a completely different skill set. It's about taking risks. It's about being passionate, like about a specific consumer insight and then executing that with a lot of sharpness and just being really, really pushy about your consumer. And I think to be fair to that, I think I definitely, you know, learned what not to do, but also 
I did have that discipline and understanding from being a general manager and working with great general managers on how to manage a P&L and, and a big business day to day. I love that point that you made that being a founder is so different from being a CEO. And you begin to realize that when startups grow, when businesses grow, typically if the founder doesn't move into the CEO role, they will hire for a CEO because the founder doesn't have the experience or the training and the business is growing too fast. And so they need to quickly bring someone in, which isn't always the best way to do things. And it can be quite tough for the founder. But I love that you highlighted that. So what was it that led you to decide that you wanted to be a founder of your own brand? What was that moment that you had? I read somewhere that it was related to burnout and postnatal depression, and you took some time off for recovery. Yeah, I think that what you said in the previous, in, in your previous comments is really like insightful. Like I think being a general manager and seeing yourself grow into a CEO position or like get that corner office. I think we're all like, you know, my parents um also you know they've they've kind of led big companies and you know they they both worked in senior management in really big roles and I think you know obviously as I grew up I saw that and you know I guess you know growing up in the 80s 90s and 2000s you're like oh you know you're going to be the CEO and you're going to be in that corner office and I think what I had was a crisis of identity where um after like working for 15 or 16 years in this big company I realized that that wasn't what I wanted. And I think that in this crisis of identity, I also, this obviously coincided with me having my children and many other changes that I was going through. But I think it was like a splitting of self (laughs) that happens. I suppose that happens. Like I was reading a lot of research. It happens with adolescent girls as well. You split from your child self to the person you're eventually going to become. And I think like I also faced this identity crisis where I realized that the things that maybe I'd been brought up to believe were success, like I wasn't finding any happiness or joy in those things. And that as I saw my life evolve in the next, you know, I was in my late thirties, like as I saw my life evolve to becoming like into my fifties and sixties, what those, that set of successful people were doing wasn't something that I felt would bring me happiness. And I think that was really the trigger for me becoming um, unwell and um, kind of really then my journey of self-reflection in terms of defining my own version of success and what that looks like. So definitely, you know, that was a turning point in my life obviously in my career, but also definitely was a turning point in my life where I had to like redefine what was making me happy. And it was clear to me that what I was doing at that time wasn't bringing me any happiness. And I think, you know, if I hadn't have had the courage to go with a shift or with a change or evolve and grow into what I'm doing now, I think I probably would have remained unhappy once I did self-reflect and understand what would make me happy, I realized coming back to your point that being a general manager and getting that corner office wasn't what I wanted. And what I really wanted to do was to be true to myself and create things. And that's more like closer to, I guess, a founder role. (laughs) So that's definitely what kind of led me to decide that I would start my own company. I kind of just outgrew what I was doing. And I realized the longer I stay on that road, maybe the longer I'll be unhappy. And so I decided to take a, take a chance, take a risk and leave, leave my corporate 
career behind and do something different. And I think that's the point that many people are at right now, especially after the pandemic. A lot of people are questioning whether their jobs are actually making them happy. And they're really questioning whether they want to work five days a week or continue to work in paid employment and are now seeking to think about how they can work for themselves. Um, so I think I love that you highlighted that because that's literally the shift that we're seeing in the workplace at the moment, um, although you had it much earlier. <laughs> so you were ahead of everyone. <laughs> well, I mean, I also, to be fair, I just, you know, in the work that I did, I saw also that there was a gap. You know, there's there's a gap in what big companies are offering customers today. And I realized that in some ways it would be easier to fill that gap doing things in a more efficient way on a smaller level. And so it was kind of both things, I guess, that enabled me to take that risk. And when you started the business, did you start it doing it on the side alongside your full-time job? Or did you just leave your full-time job and go straight into it? So there was a couple of things. So I, when I left my corporate role, I was overworked, very stressed, a mother of two. I just had my son. Leading up to that, I had been really reevaluating my life and I just, I decided that it was probably best for me to take time off because I was very burnt out. And I took a year where I um, worked on myself. Uh, I gave my time, myself time to do a lot of therapy. I, I was in the priory. I was doing a work burnout program with a lot of, by the way, very similar people with similar backgrounds who'd also had children and perhaps felt overworked. Um, and I think I then went back into the corporate world again, and I worked at a portfolio company for a, a brand that was um, had raised capital and was trying to exit, was owned by a venture capitalist. So I spent a year there. Again, the role really focused on digital immersion. So it was really trying to take a brand that had been going for whatever, 30, 40 years and kind of recreate it for the digital customer. And so. Um, when I completed that one year, I, I realized more than ever that what I wanted to do with Planaire was possible because I could see that this venture capitalist, this, this company uh, was pouring about 15 to 20 million into a brand uh, to turn it around. And actually with my experience and my, um, you know, I had, I had managed very large brands for Unilever at that point. Um, and I'd managed, you know, like multi-million pound budgets as well. But I was looking at it from the lens of media efficiencies and what was happening in the smaller digital beauty space. I could see that you, you probably didn't need that much money. <laughs> um, you didn't need to spend 15 or 20 million to hire, you know, maybe an elite team of 20 people who are ex-L'Oreal, you, you probably could do it in a more efficient way. So like I had a chance to really road test my skills, you know, working for a year on that brand and creating all the digital content behind it with a huge budget, you know, that was, that was given to us to do it. And I realized that, you know, it was probably pretty easy for us to create something, you know, around my idea, which I felt was very unique at that time um, with, very little seed capital at that point in time. So it wasn't um, kind of a side hustle for me. I had a very clear understanding of exactly what I wanted to create. Sort of very early in, I realized that I was quite pushy about my idea. And I didn't actually, this is going to sound terrible, but I didn't want anyone to get in the way of that idea. 
So I deliberately didn't have a co-founder. I didn't actually didn't want to, you know, I didn't want that. I wanted to get my idea out there and push it. I was very pushy about it and I was very, like a very possessive about it. And I wanted, I didn't want much interference with that idea. So it was almost like, you know, like, (laughs) it's funny because like I I was actually describing this to a friend of mine. It's like when you're, when you're pregnant, you feel really ill all the time, but then you actually, you're, you go and you're sick and then you feel relieved. And I think it's, it's the same thing with Panera. It's like, I had to say something. I wanted to say something. It had to be said. And now that it's out there and now that it's been said, I feel extremely relieved. It was a bit compulsion, like, you know, like a painter has to paint or somebody has to do something. It was almost a compulsion to get the idea out there as opposed to something I rationally thought through and picked an investor and picked a co-founder. There was none of that. It was kind of a compulsion from the beginning. Mm. Um, So you started this when you took the year off um, and you mentioned that um, you had some stress related burnout and you went through a program. Do you feel that, you know, now that you're a full time entrepreneur that has allowed you to manage your stress better? Because, you know, I've worked a full time job. I've also built business. (laughs) And um, I do think to an extent you can manage your stress better. Some people would disagree, but I do think there's definitely more room for flexibility. But what has your experience been like? I mean, I think there's there's no question. Could I do what I'm doing today, having not lived through that experience, that mental health experience? 100% I couldn't. Because I think what that experience taught me, well, it's a, it's a few things so I can unpack them. So the first thing is, you know, leadership is the best, what I've understood is the best leaders are the ones that manage to stay composed when everything around them is falling to bits. And when the pressure is on, if you can still turn to your team and instead of parceling blame or passing on the problem or passing on the stress, you can still turn to your team or in this case to yourself with humanity and compassion and patience, that's what great leadership is. I will say that that is missing in the corporate world. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so glad (laughs) I don't work in those environments anymore, because sadly, there is a lot of that. There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of throwing people under the bus. There's a lot of politics. I'm not necessarily sure. And I'm totally not generalizing here. I'm I'm just saying that it is a jungle to get to the top of a hill. I'm not necessarily sure that the people that work the hardest or create the best outputs get to the top of that hill. It's often people who are, you know, more political. So I think, you know, going through any kind of crisis or any kind of really low point when you're at your lowest, um, as a human being, it's very important to live through moments like that because what it does is it gives you humanity and compassion. So if you've never lived through that, actually, I feel kind of bad if somebody hasn't, because I think it gives you a lot of humanity and compassion in a way that somebody who perhaps has had everything go right for them and never faced really big challenges wouldn't react in a situation. So I think that really taught me about, you know, humanity and compassion and feeling for people and empathy and making sure that you put kindness to yourself and kindness to others first. And that's a huge part of plein air you know, 
going into the research that we did, so we did a lot of social listening. So the second piece of, of my mental health journey also helped me create thin air because when we went into these um, ethnographies with young women and mothers, I was less, as a marketeer, I was less listening to, oh, well, I use, you know, I use Mario Badescu or I use, you know, uh, Glam Glow or I go to Sephora. I was more listening to the so what? So what? So how does that make me feel? So people compare each other online or, you know, my daughter is in a WhatsApp group that I didn't know about, which teaches her how to self-harm. I was more listening to the messages around compassion, humanity, the downside of comparisons, of how that makes people feel, the idea that all the beauty is going online and the increasing digital veil that young women live under makes them feel bad about themselves. Of course, I was listening to the products they use and where they buy them, but I was much more as a marketeer listening to the so what? So how does that make me feel? So how does that impact my actions? So how does that impact me as a woman? And I think this idea that beauty can be a tool of compassion, uh, respect, uh, and emotional well-being I don't think I would have really pursued that in the way that I have with plein air if I hadn't lived through those kinds of toxic comparisons, toxic environments, like all the things that come with um, that mental health journey that I had in the same way. So it, I mean, like, there's no question I couldn't be a founder and I couldn't do put myself in all the kinds of stressful situations and also dealing with the ambiguity of being a founder without that real retraining of my brain was like, I really retrained my brain to be present and calm and kind to myself and kind to other human beings as a first. I wouldn't be able to do that. And two, plein air wouldn't be plein air because we wouldn't be talking about, you know, humanity and, and, and sort of self-expression or diversity of thinking or open-mindedness to people's differences or emotional well-being in the same way. And plein air is purely for and marketed to Gen Z. Um, and why did you decide to target this generation? Well, I think that if you look at the different age cohorts, right, like I'm Gen X, which is the lost generation, nobody really has anything <laughs> too much to say about Gen X, um, you know, uh, there's some stuff around fashion choices, which I think is cool with Gen X, but really, you know, I guess the millennial generation, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, and you see all these, you know, this cohort of millennial brands where it's very much, I don't know if you've seen the Simon Sinek on millennials, it comes back to how millennials were parented by a group of, of you know, I was parented by by boomers, you know, that Gen X. And, um, and then we have this group of, of people in their 30s that are millennials and the way that they create brands and the brands that they've created and the, the companies that have been created by millennials feel very different to, I think, the way that Gen Z uh, behave. So a Gen Z girl or boy is just, you know, they're much more altruistic. You know, if millennials are all about themselves and creating an environment which is focused on their needs which is something that you see a lot of, which, which I admire, by the way. Um, they're the first set of, uh, first consumer cohort to really do that. I think Gen Z is a much more altruistic set of individuals. They're really concerned about things that are, you know, not typically seen in that space. You know, we know some of the girls that we spoke to in their generation just were talking about, 
you know, violence and gun control and, um, you know, human rights. And I mean, I think that's always been part of the story with any set of customers. But I think what we're seeing with Gen Z is this real, you know, responsibility towards, you know, really, they were kind of really interrogating the impact of their beauty consumption on a day-to-day basis. They wanted to know where brands came from. They wanted to understand the supply chain behind a brand and in a way that that would really impact whether they were choosing that brand or not. You know, it's I think it's less that Planair chose Gen Z. It's more that we wanted to create the blueprint of this future company. And I think this future company was going to focus on a customer that was just starting out, you know, somebody who was kind of in her early 20s or late teens and she was also, that's also, by the way, where the opportunity was, she was kind of adopting brands in a different way. She was finding out about brands in a different way. Her consumer journey looked completely different to people who had come, you know, generations that had come before. And I think being a technology focused company, that was where it made most sense for us to, to get into that conversation because people could find out about you and adopt you much quicker than you know, I suppose more established audiences or, you know, bigger corporations with more money to, to how would you get in that conversation otherwise? So we were really looking to a, a customer who's open to trying new things and digital first, and we could easily get to her somehow. And she also had these kind of shared ideals around what beauty meant, as in it's more holistic. It's less about appearance and less about solving a problem. It's a much more holistic process for her when she uses a brand. And you've defined Plein Air as a community-based beauty brand. Why the emphasis on community and what does that even mean for Plein Air and its customers? I mean, I think at the heart of any brand today is, is a cultural shift. And I think, I don't think products bring people together. I think it's really shared values that bring people together. Nobody's sitting on a technology platform discussing I suppose in some places they might discussing like functionally what ingredient is better than uh, another one. I suppose in, in, in some instances that would be the case. But I think in my experience, what brings people together is a shared value system. And so I think, you know, that's how we've kind of defined it for Planair is that it's a community of people, a community of people who really have the same idea that beauty can be a part of their daily mental health and emotional well-being. It's an act of caring for themselves. Um, It's a moment where they're present with themselves and are focusing on themselves, you know, with the beauty market being so polarized with, I suppose, legacy brands talking all about cosmetic benefits on one side or, you know, acne is the problem. Here's the solution, problem solution on the other side. I think we're rejecting both of those ideals and we're actually telling her there's no race to get to the end and you're not a problem to be solved, you're doing this um, as a way to look after yourself and feel better about yourself. And I think that is something that perhaps resonates with young people, but it also resonates with people of all ages. So this idea of community is bound by the fact that people will opt into plein air because they have this shared sense of what beauty means. And I think that's, that's really important for us. And did you create the products yourself or was this something that you outsourced? Um, And what was the timeline from idea to actual product in hand? That's a great question. 
So I think that um, we, I would have loved to create the product myself. And I would love to be able to say on a podcast, oh, you know, I made this in my kitchen sink. But I think having worked, <laughs> having worked at Unilever um, and also just being so focused on safety as a mother and as a young customer, I mean, we're always saying, to the press, to beauty buyers, you know, Planair is for the youngest skin. It's for young and delicate skin. And, and we wanted to create a product that was very stable, got to shelf safely, but was effective. Those were the two things that were extremely important to me, safety and efficacy and care for future generations, which is something that I learned when I worked on Dove. It's like never about creating something for me or my friends or it's about future generations and how people are going to adopt your product as, as time goes on, because we don't see Planera as something that is just like for one second or for today, or like, it's something that goes on. It's a, it, it's a classic. It is something that hopefully people will buy now, buy 10 years from now, 50 years from now. And it's something that becomes a classic. And so, um, I was maybe too biased by my previous experiences as a product developer to create something at home. So I went a very corporate and traditional route, Liz. So I just, I looked for the best chemist and I looked at the industry and who was creating amazing products. And it was very hard to get in front of this individual. I'll be honest with you. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for any entrepreneur, right? It's like, it's not just about having the idea. Like I am not good at Photoshop. I'm not good at retouch. Obviously I can't create a product because I don't have the chemist, the, the background, but I need to find on a day-to-day basis, these amazing people that are willing to go out on a limb for me because I'm not, you know, for sure, I'm not keeping experts like that going in terms of the fees I offer them. Yeah, I'm teeny tiny at the moment. So they're really agreeing to come along on this journey with me because I'm offering them something that is interesting for them. And I think that's a really important lesson that I learned as well. It's like, it's not when you're trying to get great people to work for you, you have to be able to offer them something that's interesting for them. So yeah, so I mean, I'm not sure if it answers your question, but I I tried unsuccessfully to get in touch with who I think is one of the best experts in the industry. And she turned me down many times, but I kind of had to just keep going till she cracked. <laughs> so, so she creates all of our formulations. I create the idea. So just as I would have at Unilever, I, I wrote a, a consumer brief in terms of what the need gap is, what I want the formulation to look like, smell like, like the whole definition around all of the sensory, the claims and understanding, but also not trying to always give a chemist a brief that is not replicating something. So you, you, you have to give it them inspiration from somewhere. You have to have product benchmarks, but at the same time, I would hope with plein air products, like every single thing that we create, like our skin frosting mask, our tripler three in one, these are not things that existed before. I mean, of course, if you break them down into individual pieces, you know, our tripler mask contains clay and black currency, but you know, the formula is very much around creating a distinctive proposition that no one else has. And, you know, I had a marketing professor who once said, like, if you smash every single piece of your brand and you pick up a tiny shard, that should still say plein air. It's the same with our formulations. I would hope with our rose jelly, with our triple, with our skin frosting, if you broke it down into a million pieces and somebody picked up a drop, they would be able to recognize that that's plein air. And I think that's always a very interesting brief for a chemist to create something truly original. 
And in terms of challenges, what was your biggest one? Because I know you had just launched just before the pandemic, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, just looking back at your journey, what has been the biggest challenge for plein air or I guess for you as an entrepreneur to date? I mean, I think ironically with the pandemic, Liz, like we were in a great position because we had launched digital, like when other companies were scrambling to, you know, furlough their field staff and close doors and perhaps a lot of their revenue was coming from face-to-face selling. Like we were all, we were like pandemic set up. Like we pushed our Shopify site live on, you know, in September of 2019, we had a very, very small press event where we invited like 30 members of the press, uh, you know, um, we, we were already, we had a great little warehouse team that I had trained myself. I, you know, gone down there with everything to explain to all the team there, how to pack each order. Our supply chain was virtual in terms of all our suppliers. Our stock had actually at that point been produced. So I was sitting on what I thought was a couple years of stock. I know now because our sales had been amazing that it didn't last me. So like we've been scrambling through COVID to get enough supply of raw materials and things into our contract manufacturer quick enough. But I had my stock. I had my Shopify site. I didn't have Salesforce. I had, you know, Stripe and PayPal and everything just, it was a company created for a pandemic, I guess. And since the pandemic has, has, I mean, since we've kind of gone back to normal a little bit, we've definitely seen a little bit of a a drop in our sales. So yeah, I think most companies said, you know, (laughs) quite similar things, but um, I did hear that during COVID that, or during the pandemic, rather that the sales or, you know, beauty, skincare, you know, became a really big trend just because I think people were at home and they were bored <laughs> and yeah. looking at a lot of social content that was around beauty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, cause people weren't also wearing stuff like makeup and, you know, yeah. you know, they were at home and people were just putting more effort into their skin. So I know in terms of like, you know, skincare products, there was an increase of sales. So um, I guess for some businesses, there was an advantage or they, you know, did gain from everyone being locked up at home. Yeah, I think definitely people were glued to their phone. You know, we grew our Instagram following. We've had like more than 3 million organic impressions. We we have never, we have never really put any money behind the air. Like we haven't, we're now like doing a little bit of fundraising, but we have been organic from day one. And this is the been, you know, for me, I, I, I could not be more grateful for the support that has come my way from so many different people who you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't even imagine um, who have just said, you know, hey, I like your product. I think it's really cool. I think it's unique. We want to help you. How can we be part of your story? How can we be part of your journey? Never would I have ever, ever thought that that would be possible. I would have, I would have thought maybe, you know, maybe I'll sell a little bit and I'll just keep going and who knows, I'll figure it out. But we've been overwhelmed with the amount of support that's come our way and the people who wanted to come help us and, um, you know, from press to beauty buyers to just the skincare community online, like influencers, they put so much love into everything they do for us. We couldn't be more grateful. In terms of the biggest challenge creating Planair, I would say has been the name, like (laughs) one of the biggest, I suppose that's something that sounds so technical and silly, doesn't it? Like, how do you name your business? And some people will say, oh, well, you know, I just named it a, a complex series of, of numbers and words, but that felt very soulless to me. So 
I think our biggest challenge so far, obviously, is, is finding the right people to work on our business. But it's, it's definitely been naming and, and getting the global IPR and owning, uh, you know, uh, owning that name globally was, was a big challenge and finding it and finding that unique space. And apart from all the brilliant experience you gained from working at Unilever and Coke, what are the resources such as books, podcasts or courses or anything that you'd recommend that have helped you along the journey? I obviously love how I built this. I used to, how I used to listen to that, to that all the time. Um, you know, one of my favorite sort of speakers slash writers is, is Dr. Brene Brown, who talks about the power of, of empathy and, you know, her, um, two videos on YouTube, definitely worth, worth checking out. I think I must've read her book to shreds. I think again, it's, it's not a business book. It teaches you about leadership and humanity and, um, vulnerability. And I think, again, there's a big impact of that kind of thinking on plan air. We are vulnerable. You know, we're, we're not trying to be perfect. We don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. But I think, you know, this idea of vulnerability makes you very attractive to people. And we're not like an authority expert figure. We wouldn't want to be. That's, I don't think that's what people are looking for today. They are looking to be part of something and to peer to peer to share and to come to solutions to together. So, yeah, I think, you know, those are some great resources there. One of the things I've also learned as an entrepreneur is like everybody's journey is different. And I think it's really, really important to, of course, listen to all these podcasts and, and things. But also, Liz, I have to say that sometimes it's very intimidating listening to them um, because you feel like you'll never get there. And you end up comparing yourself to other people, which I know is not the intention of the podcast. Like that's not the intention at all, but you feel that other people have all the answers and, and you're never going to get there. So sometimes I actually I don't, don't do much of that. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's why it's important for founders to really be transparent as to how the journey started. I mean, you've simply told me that you didn't make the product in your kitchen, you outsourced it and, you know, for another person listening who doesn't have that experience of making a product themselves, they will gain the confidence that, okay, if she did it, I can do it too. So I guess it's really explaining your story from the ground up as opposed to from the top and say, yeah, we've been up here for a while. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this, this is, that's the whole thing is that people shouldn't be afraid or intimidated to do things differently. Yeah. You know, and I think we have to send that. I think as as uh, women leaders and as an entrepreneur, you have to send that message to people that don't be afraid to approach things differently, to do things differently, to the, to listen to that little voice inside. It doesn't have to be always being like someone else or the herd effect of running a certain way when everyone's running that way. I actually abhor that kind of thinking. And I'm very much a proponent of people finding a discontinuous way of thinking that hasn't been done before. And I think it's those ideas and those executions that really resonate as opposed to the also ran concepts. Like you're the 10th person to do something. I think you have to have some vulnerability, originality, and you really do have to kind of put yourself out there to, to see good results. 
And for someone who wants to enter the industry and doesn't have any experience at all, you know, hasn't worked at a Unilever, hasn't, you know, um, worked in beauty, but actually wants to enter the space because they believe that they have a product that could generally be very beneficial to their customers. What are the three tips that you would give to them? So I think, you know, the most important thing with, you know, having a great consumer insight where you're like, yes, this is going to to work. I, I have the consumer understanding to do it is that even if you have that gap, it's about how you execute against it. It's about how you present that product, how you, you know, even to a, when we went into this, we send things out on a daily basis to people, but really making sure that there's, prof- you may have a great idea, but it's the professionalism with which you present yourself and the execution, the color, the smell, the container, everything about it needs to feel credible and legitimate. So execution is really important. I think, of course, there's so many people who enter beauty. And I think a lot of people who come into the industry who don't have experience, it's really refreshing because they are approaching things in a completely different way. And, you know, if there's somebody who comes from an art or design background or somebody who comes from a background that is not business, it's really refreshing because they're going to approach things in a different way. So I think there's a lot to be said for finding the experts. You know, I was on the phone the other day to someone, to, to um, a, a young entrepreneur, and he wants to create something. He has a great vision about it. And, you know, I put him in touch with five or six people that run labs because I'm like, you know what? You, you manage the tech side. You go after the consumer insight. You have a very specific niche that you're going, you know, to pursue. But there are experts out there that can help you, you know, and that brings me to my third tip, which is do not give up. Do not be afraid to be some kind of stalker. (laughs) (laughs) I think if I had given up the great people that have been part of our journey so far, um, you know, our chemist, um, the team at Pentagram Design that designed our design identity and logo, the amazing like photographers we work with you know, David Plasek, who owns Lexicon Branding, who he named our brand. And he's also named some extraordinary brands all over the world. Like when you start something, all you, Zero Studios, who should I, I should also give a shout out to and mention that they're a small studio in, um, in New York based in Soho, who did our website design for us. Uh, they built a, a custom site on, on Shopify for us. None of these people, like when you're starting something, all you have is an idea. And you have to sell that idea to someone and you have to convince them to come along on this journey with you. And so these people are all extremely talented and very busy and they don't have time to be messing around with anyone. So I think tenacity, and that's something I learned from my Indian parents. Be tenacious, be brave, be, you know, polite yet pushy, do not go away. I think if you give up and you don't pursue ideas, like you don't pursue it, people, there's no chance that you'll get the best people to work with you. So I think don't be afraid to be really tenacious, you know, follow your instinct and find experts, tear down walls to find the best people to work on your business. And I like the point around, you know, being consistent and, you know, (laughs) stalking the people, because I think when it comes to networking, when it comes to actually building a business, it's really 
really, really important for um, the people around you, because there are loads of things that you haven't done. And it's the advice that you get from the other people who have maybe done those things or a few steps ahead or can connect you with someone else. And at times when we reach out to these people and we, and we don't get the response, you know, there's a bit of, oh, you know, I'm not going to follow up since they didn't respond. And um, I think it's important to keep pressing on and to keep pursuing it if they haven't responded because you know it could simply be they didn't have time they've missed your message of course so yeah I think that's very very important yeah and I think what you're what, what you just said right now it's something again that I learned when I was doing therapy it's like depressive thinking so depressive thinking is like you know they announce job cuts at work right and the depressive thinker is the one that is paranoid all day long that they're going to lose their job and the you know, the optimistic thinker, which is I've worked a lot on, on optimistic thinking and, and future, you know, sort of envisioning a positive future as opposed to having depressive thinking is the person who thinks, of course, I'm going to be the only one that keeps my job. So I think it's the same thing with these daily little interactions that we have. It's like you could be the person who thinks, well, my idea isn't good enough for somebody to even call me back. Or you could be the person who thinks, well, it probably just went into spam and I'm going to keep going, you know, like. I think, I think you have to like put your best foot forward and also self-awareness, like recognize when you're going into those negative thought patterns, because as an entrepreneur, that will be every single day. So self-awareness that you're doing those things and, 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 and trying to get out of doing them and um, really envisioning positivity and envisioning a positive outcome is again, it's a skill to be learned like anything else. And it's, it's, I think it's really important to keep your spirits up and, and keep going to do that. I love that one, especially around reframing your thoughts. So wrapping up with the last question, what is the future for plein air? What should we be looking out for? Is there anything new products, partnerships? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like I think we've just concluded a really successful partnership with an amazing skincare influencer who's like such a big force in skincare. Again, that's someone who reached out to us. I would have never thought that we would, we would be able to, to work with her you know, as, as such a small, as such a small brand, uh, Planair are also launching with Space NK in the, into the United States, into 60 Doors, the United States, and I should also say Canada, with 60 Doors, Bloomingdale's, uh, Nordstrom, and Hudson Bay in Canada. Again, um, our partnership with Space NK was something that came through just, I think, tenacity, <laughs> perhaps tenacity and, and going back and, and also the goodwill of, of certain people who just love plein air and, and believe in it and have pushed it forward. So we have that partnership coming up. We are primarily in, in face care and cleansing and we will have some new launches around face care. We have products with more actives coming up in the early part of next year. Uh, but ultimately, you know, this idea of emotional well-being and beauty is something that is, you know, is, is sort of infinitely scalable. Uh, we definitely see Planair extending into hair care, body care, you know, uh, fragrance, really areas that we think, you know, are ripe for disruption, that are only have one narrative and only have one dialogue. So for sure, those are all things that will come up in the future. But, um, you know, we we are just trying to focus on our day-to-day -day wholesale and direct-to-consumer business at the moment. We also have a small fundraise coming up. So if any of your audience is ever interested in investing in small beauty brands, we are going to go live with Cedars probably in the next month. Um, you can invest as little as 50 pounds in plein air and 
you know, ultimately uh, you, you can go on there and have a look at what we've achieved so far accomplishments, but you can also see what all the funds that we're using will be used for in a very, very transparent way. So that's something also that we are, we're very excited about doing some, uh, some crowdfunding. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to add the link to the crowdfund in the podcast notes. So everyone should be able to click through from there very easily. Namrata, thank you so much for coming on the podcast show. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I think you're one of the few founders actually who I've interviewed that has had a wide range of experience and has done things differently. Um, and I think it's really important just to show the vast experience of founders, you know, definitely different types out there. And I think it's really important. So I've loved hearing your story today and I love being able to share it. So thank you so much. You're so, so welcome. And the last thing that I will say is just again, saying everyone's journey is different. I'm sharing mine, but that there isn't only one way to do it. And I think leaving a podcast feeling like empowered to have your own journey and do it your own way is really important. And I I would hope that I've sent that message in chatting with you today. So thank you. That's it for this episode of How I Made It Happen. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do follow, leave a review and a rating as it really helps others in discovering the podcast. And lastly, if you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, you can sign up for that at fourworkingladies.com. Thank you for listening. Hey.